he was riding his motorcycle to work unhelmeted and got into a big motorcycle accident. His injuries when he initially came to our unit, he had bilateral subdurals, he had multiple rib fractures, bilateral hemoneumothorax, multiple wounds on his face, abdomen, chest. He had a right arm fracture. He also had thoracic spinal fractures and also had some C fractures as well. So they placed bilateral chest tubes. They splinted his arm, okay. put him in a C-collar. He did get some blood products because of the hemoneumothorax that he had. They also had to resuscitate him with vasopressors, and they end up putting in a bolt to measure his intracranial pressures. Okay. So we have a brain bleed going on with increasing intracranial pressure. We have some orthopedic injuries that need to be addressed, C-spine injuries, now also some respiratory stuff going on. So multi-systems are being managed by this team in the ICU. I did not think he was going to make it. And yeah. that even came out of my mouth. I said, have we had discussions with family? You know, like this, there is no way. And here he is walking back into the unit before he left. That's amazing. Hey there, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories? bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. Welcome back to the Rapid Response Run Podcast. Today, I am so excited to welcome our friend, Sarah Vance. Sarah, welcome to the Rapid Response Run Thank Podcast. Thank you, Sarah. I'm so, so happy to be here. <laughs> Yay! I'm so excited. It's going to be a good episode. It is. It is. Okay, so guys, Sarah is a really good educator. I am excited to share her education teaching style with you. You're going to love it. You may already know her as ICU nurse, like I-S-E-E-U nurse. That's her handle on all of her social media pages. She's awesome. Today, we're talking about trauma, specifically like how complicated trauma patients can be. And then next week, we're going to do an episode about specifically MTP and the trauma diamond of death. So I can't wait to break this down. Before we dive into the case though, Sarah, can you just introduce yourself to my audience? Tell me your nursing journey and how you ended up with doing the whole ICU nurse sure. thing. Yeah. So thank you, first of all, for having me here. I'm super pumped to be on your podcast and you know how much I love you. So I'm super excited to nerd out with you on our episode. Yes. So, yeah, so my name is Sarah, like she said, and my nursing journey started back in 2009. I was a fresh new grad and I went straight into the ICU. So I went through a residency program, went to straight to ICU. Medical ICU is my background, medical surgical ICU. 
and honestly fell in love with it. So my initial intent was I wanted to be a flight nurse. And you have to have some ICU background or ER background, usually both. And so I said, well, I'll just be an ICU nurse. And then once I got into it, I realized how much I loved it. So I have been in critical care areas for about 14 years now. This last August was 14 years. I've done pretty much every role, bedside nurse, obviously, backup rapid at one point because we didn't have a response team for my unit. And then I was a charge nurse from pretty much year four up until about year 12. And then I did need to take a break for a while. So I actually at one point quit nursing for about a year and uh, went and solo traveled out west for a little bit and worked in a coffee shop and uh, quickly realized that, you know, I still loved being a nurse. Like I I needed more. So, uh, but I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do yet because critical care, as we all know, can be a lot sometimes. And I had been spending a lot of time in that area. So I was a little burnout. So I actually did uh, wound care for a little bit. And I was the wound care champion when I was the bedside critical care nurse. So made sense to me. Dabbled in it, you know, whatever. So did some wound care for a little bit. And then I was like, this is not for me. So then I went to cardiac cath lab. And that's kind of when my cardiac history kind of started to become more dominant. And that was 2021 when we all know what happened. Mm -hmm. And at that time... I felt really called to go back to critical care, especially with what we were seeing. Like, you know, lung issues with proning patients, paralyzing patients, all that was my jam. It was Mm -hmm. my expertise. And so I felt really called to go help. So that's when I became a travel nurse to an area hospital that I work at now as their educator. And I was there with them through until we closed the COVID unit, honestly, which was really rewarding to watch. And in that time period, I really enjoyed the staff that I worked with, and I decided that I wanted to move permanently to that area. And magically, they had a critical care nurse educator position available. And so I took that role because I wanted to help in different ways and serve my patients in different ways. Um, There was a lot that I can do as a bedside nurse, but I wanted to be able to help nurses that are coming, and then that in turn will help the patients that we see. So it was a need that I saw and something that spoke to me in multiple ways. Awesome. So that was my nursing journey. And then it just kind of flourished into ICU nurse, which is, you know, the business that I have now. It's a play on words. So ICU, critical care, obviously, intensive care unit, but also ICU, like visually, I see what you're going through. So there's a lot of mentorship that I do within that realm um, because critical care can be rough. Yeah. So, yeah. I want to just point out too, I think there's this whole stigma about nurses leaving the bedside. And I disagree with all of this, but they're like, oh, they couldn't take it. They couldn't handle it. They didn't have what it takes. So not at all. Like sometimes nursing is just a lot. Mm-hmm. It affects your your moral fortitude. And sometimes taking a break is the best thing you can do for your patients. Yeah. And so It's crazy that you took a whole year off and worked at a coffee shop. I was very lucky to be able to do that. But I think it allowed you to be able to come back and do what you're doing today and still give back to your patients through 
giving back to the nurses that are caring for them. So I just wanted to pause and point that piece out. Like you didn't leave the bedside because you didn't like caring for sick people. No. Or that you lost passion or compassion. It was just, it's heavy. It's yep. heavy stuff what we do. And one thing that I always say is like, we are the most important person when it comes to our patient's care. And so if I'm going to live by that motto, I really had to invest in that for myself. And I just needed to take a moment for me. And there's a whole other idea that like you'll lose your skills. Let me tell you, they come back just like that. <laughs> like took some time, but like they're still there. Yeah. And all of that is okay. But it definitely was something that I needed to do. And if anything, when I came back as a traveler during COVID, it reignited something within me that has now just pushed everything forward to what I'm doing. I love it. I love what you're doing today. Thank you. So that brings us to today, how me and Sarah met, what, like March? this yeah. year i saw sarah teaching about something online and i was like "Ooh, i like her she's like breaking it down real good and so i think we like message each other something along the lines of like we should be friends like your name is sarah my name is sarah and you're an educator and i'm an educator we both are passionate about giving back to nursing and oh wait you got a, a bunch of dogs i got a bunch of kids and you love plants too you're going to nti anyways we ended up meeting up in person at nti yeah. And competing together in this critical care challenge. And then we won second place. Anyways, the rest is history. Now she's here at my house in my in-home podcast recording studio closet talking about trauma. So let's dive into the case, Sarah. Sure. Tell us about this patient you told me about. What brought him to the hospital? And whenever he showed up in your unit, what was going on? Sure. So this was a young patient, male patient with no past medical history whatsoever. I mean, they were in their mid-20s. He was riding his motorcycle to work unhelmeted and ended up going over some sticks in the road and got into a big motorcycle accident. And so he came into our emergency department as a level one. In the Bay, there's a lot of stuff that happens. Obviously, I wasn't there, but his injuries when he initially came to our unit, he had bilateral subdurals, he had multiple rib fractures, bilateral hemoneumothorax, so bilateral chest tubes, multiple wounds on his face, abdomen, chest. He had a right fracture, right arm fracture. He also had thoracic spinal fractures and also had some C fractures as well. I think it was C3 and 4, but I could be wrong. But yeah, multiple, multiple injuries with this My patient. Goodness. And then what interventions had been done prior to coming to you? You said he had chest tubes and whatnot. Yep. So Any they, other interventions? Yeah. So they placed bilateral chest tubes. They splinted his arm, okay. put him in a C-collar. He did get some blood products because of the hemoneumothorax that he had. So they had to replace that volume. They also had to resuscitate him with vasopressors, and they end up putting in a bolt to measure his intracranial pressures. Okay. So we have a brain bleed going on with increasing intracranial pressure. We have some orthopedic injuries that need to be addressed, C-spine injuries, now also some respiratory stuff going on. So multi-systems are being managed by this team in the ICU. Yeah. How, we'll just start with neuro. How was he doing neuro-wise? So when he came over, his initial ICPs were okay. The bolt was just placed to monitor, but we all know that you have a primary injury. And then with days, the cerebral edema happens over the course of time. So that's really what we needed to make sure that we are monitoring. So that's what the bolt was for. So he was very sedated on the vent, obviously ventilated, on vasopressors, on sedation. Both of his chest tubes hooked to negative 20 suction. 
Um, he did have a small chest tube leak, I believe, in the right side. But our biggest concern at that point was making sure that we were continuing to resuscitate him. So turning those labs, continuing to keep him sedated and comfortable, and definitely watching those intracranial pressures because we know that he has the risk of having intracranial hypertension, which we all know could run the risk of herniation. Gotcha. So he didn't have any belly injuries, no like liver lack or bleeding internally? No internal bleeding. Nope. He just had the biggest blood loss that he had was from his bilateral, yep, his chest tubes. So I think just from watching TV, we always assume trauma nursing is like a bunch of blood everywhere, like broken bones sticking out. But sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. (laughs) But with this patient, we had other organ systems that we really needed to keep a close eye on. Yeah. And so it's not your typical trauma-looking patient because there's not like, you know, imagine them in traction or like, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not this patient. This is a very sick neuro ICU patient, yeah. a very sick medical ICU patient. Like they have respiratory issues that are only going to get worse, right? So can right. you talk about how his care evolved over the next couple of days as the cerebral edema set in, as the lung damage starts to set in? What, yeah. What happened so that? there is a correlation or something that can happen sometimes when patients have traumatic brain injuries. They are at higher risk of going into acute respiratory distress syndrome for multiple reasons. So not only does he have chest trauma, but he also had blood products. And, you know, there is a whole inflammatory process that happens when our patients are in a trauma. And so that contributes to the risk factor of going into acute respiratory distress syndrome. So initially, he we weren't seeing that. So our biggest focus was on his um, ICP numbers. And like I said, they were, were, they were doing okay. We were managing them with 3% saline, you know, making sure that he was having adequate um, temperature management, pain control, sedation, all the things that you typically would do for a patient that is having a brain injury Mm -hmm. to prevent any elevations, clustering care, all that jazz. But then his ICPs over the few days, you know, next day, they started to climb. And so we were getting up to 20, 25. And at one point he was sitting at 40. And at that point, that is an absolute 100% emergency because that is herniation, like imminent. So at that point, we were giving him mannitol, doing everything that we could. But it was complex because due to his thoracic injury and his spinal injuries. So what is one of the biggest nursing interventions that we can do when we have elevated intracranial pressures? Make sure the head of bed is... Head of bed, greater than 45, right? But this patient, because of his injuries, we couldn't put his head up. He had to be flat. So as much as we can reverse Trendelenburg him... That's all we could do. Other than that, we had to manage him with other things. So luckily, our neurosurgeon came in. We ended up putting in an EVD. So an EVD is a drain that goes into the lateral ventricles to allow us to drain off some of that cerebral spinal fluid to decrease the pressures in the brain. And that helped. And we were continuing to treat him with 3% mannitol, the EVD, and all the other things that we would do related to that. And... His ICPs did improve. They got to a point where, you know, they were sitting around 15, acceptable. Mm -hmm. Still high, but acceptable. But then as the days progressed, his acute respiratory distress syndrome started to set in even more. So our PF ratios started to get really bad. We were having issues with oxygenating him, which led to a whole other issue because the treatment for ARDS is so counter to the treatment for somebody who has elevated ICPs. 
Can you break that down a little bit more? Again, not all of my audience works in a neuro ICU. So we set EVD, but can you explain like specifically what value does the EVD bring? And then we can go into ARDS a little bit more. I did do a whole episode about ARDS, but you teach it so well. So I would love to give you the floor to explain it some. So start with EVDs. What does the external ventricular drain do? So the external ventricular drain, it's like I said, it's the drain that goes into the lateral ventricles. So it's set based on a pressure. So you will level it to the external auditory Hiatus. Mm -hmm. And then based on that, you will zero it. Once you have a zero level, your provider will tell you which level you actually have the drain. So it works by if your, say your physician tells you to put it at 15. If your ICPs, because it will give you a value for your ICPs, if your pressures are above that level, then it will drain off until it gets to the 15. Mm -hmm. So it allows you to drain fluid, but it also allows you to monitor your pressures as well and get a waveform for your pressures because your waveform can tell you a lot about the compliance of the brain as well. So you would, depending on what your, or, your order says, typically it's going to be continuous drain, um, and then you would check your ICPs hourly and document those and then record the output as well. Gotcha. So you can see how this patient probably had a one-to-one nursing ratio, right? This, this, For sure. This nurse yeah. is really, really busy managing yes. the neuro aspects of the patient's care and the respiratory aspects of the patient's care, plus all of the metabolic challenges that come with a critically mm-hmm. ill patient. Okay, so the EVD is helping to pull off extra CSF to make a little more wiggle room for that brain that's swelling. Yeah. Uh, and it also simultaneously gives us more data to help make treatment decisions. And then talk a little about ARDS. How did this patient develop ARDS? He didn't have pneumonia. He's a young, healthy person. How did he get ARDS? Hey there, I've got some exciting news to share and I can't wait to tell you about it. So if you're multitasking, come back to me because this is something you won't want to miss. You may already be familiar with my one hour rapid response and rescue course, a quick dive into approaching critical patients. I'm thrilled to receive such positive feedback from nurses who found it valuable, but I'm not stopping there. I've been hard at work developing a more comprehensive, in-depth course However, the more I work on it, the more I realize that I want to offer more than just another course to purchase. Reflecting on my years as an educator, what I truly cherish is the opportunity to interact with nurses in real time, breaking down complex concepts, mentoring, inspiring, coaching, and supporting nurses as they navigate the challenges of our profession. Teaching and empowering nurses is close to my heart. Over my 20 years in the field, I've amassed a wealth of clinical knowledge that I'm committed to sharing with nurses. But there's more to being a great nurse than just understanding pathophysiology. Through trial and error myself, I've gained other valuable skills related to leadership, advocacy, resilience, which I believe can be beneficial to all nurses. So here's the plan for 2024. I wanna create a community of dedicated nurses who invest in themselves so that they can deliver exceptional patient care. This won't be just me recording myself for a podcast. I wanna teach live, address your questions and provide a platform for nurses to support one another. I'm calling it Rapid Response Academy, the heart and science of caring for the sick. Members will enjoy weekly live lessons, a community forum for questions and personal interaction with me to better understand your needs and support you on your journey. This is uncharted territory and I'm excited to explore it together. I'll be soft launching on December 1st to get to know the initial members. So those who sign up before December will receive a 25% discount and play a pivotal role in shaping the community from the ground up. 
The sign-up list opens on Friday, November 24th. If you're excited about more in-depth teaching, access to a supportive community of like-minded nurses, and the chance to be a part of our founding group, I'd love to have you on board. If you want to learn more about what I'm building, I put a link in the show notes for you. Now, let's get back to today's episode. Right. So ours, you can have a primary or a secondary. So primary is like your aspiration pneumonia that leads into ARDS, right? Like that's what we classically think of. But you can also have secondary. So ARDS truly is just an, related to an inflammatory process that then impacts the lungs. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole cascade that happens related to that alveolar capillary membrane that we have. So we have leaky capillaries. So our actual capillary bed starts to become weak and leaky, but we also have microvascular clots that start to form. We have pneumocytes that are responsible for surfactant in the alveoli. They don't work as well. So we have alveolar collapse and then our alveoli pull away from the capillary bed because of that collapse. But also a capillary bed is leaking all this fluid that also goes into the alveoli. So it becomes all edematous in there. So there's multiple things that happen. Alveolar collapse, pulling away, issues with our capillary bed. So we have really bad issues with our VQ mismatch, right? So we have this shunting effect that blood is passing through, but we're not able to oxygenate that. But we also have our alveoli that are not getting good ventilation as well. So the biggest thing that we can do with our patients is PEEP is ARDS's best friend, right? We want to be able to open that alveoli, get some of that fluid out, get those alveoli nice and recruited, so that way we can have better ventilation and hopefully better oxygen exchange. And so tissue when she says PEEP, that's positive end expiratory pressure. So increasing the pressure inside the lungs to help give us more time to oxidate and also get those alveoli popped open again. PEEP is great for lungs. Does the brain <laughs> like peep so much? When yeah, it's not so much. So yeah, so with ARDS, you want to really have patients that are on low tidal volumes. And with that, you allow for higher levels of peep. But unfortunately, peep also increases pressure everywhere and can decrease venous return and decrease venous return from the brain. So then you're having all this vascular volume that's staying stuck in a non-compliant space, our skull, which is basically the Monroe Kelly doctrine. That's what that all is about. And you don't want that. You want it to be able to fully be able to drain, to go back. You don't want just venous volume to just stay up in the brain, creating more pressure within a non-compliant compartment. So we have some competing (laughs) pathophysiologies as far as treatment goes, right? The brain needs us to get the extra venous stuff out to make space, but the lungs need the extra pressure. How do you decide what's more important for this patient? It's hard because not only do we have PEEP, but with ARDS, we also allow for some permissive hypercapnia. And which is also permissive. Which is terrible <laughs> for like, you know, so it's just, and they're hypoxic, which again, problematic for our TBI patients. Like it's just such... It is such a competing issue. So how do we how do we manage this patient? I think you just have to do your best, right? You have to look at the whole picture. That's where, okay, we have an ability to monitor our intracranial pressures. How much PEEP can we do and how does that PEEP increase or how is that impacting our pressures in the brain? You know what I mean? How much, you know, 
hypercapnia can we really allow here? What can we do to kind of fine tune? And sometimes it's like, you got to pick one, you know, brain is important. But at this point with this patient specifically, his brain injury had been improving and what was going to take him out this time was now going to be the lung injury. So it was a very, very complicated case because again, there are two different things that are have high risk of mortality, but they're opposing in the treatments. Mm-hmm. So we initially even prior to his ARDS setting in, we also did neuromuscular blocking agents to help with his elevated ICPs. And then when he went into ARDS, we continued with our neuromuscular blocking agents to hopefully help with some compliance issues for the vent. In addition to that, we did try other ventilation methods. So we tried pressure control, didn't really do too much. We also tried a bivent, which allows for high levels of PEEP for a certain amount of time to allow for better oxygenation and the patients can actually breathe spontaneously through that. So at that point, I think we did wean him off of his um, neuromuscular blocking agents, but he didn't tolerate that either. So he was very complicated in that regard. Okay, so you're trying all the right things for ARDS. There's still one more like trick, our tool we have in our toolbox for ARDS, but it's really concerning doing this particular intervention for a brain injury patient. So what did you guys end up doing whenever everything else is just failing? Yeah. So at this point, this was a long, this patient was in our ICU for over two months. So this was a very extended stay. Prior to this intervention that I'm getting ready to talk to, he did go back to the OR. We did fusions onto his thoracic spine. So he was stable in that regard. But we still had some cervical kind of injuries that we were still concerned about. And um, his ICPs had improved. His brain injury component, his edema had improved. So we really needed to figure out the thing that was going to take him out at this point was the ARDS. And one of the last things that we can do for our patients is prone them. However, proning patients that have a cervical injury is not really an indication. Yeah. So it was one of those decisions with our team that it was, what do we do? How can we actually save him? This is the last ditch effort for this individual that we have to try because if we didn't try, we know that he would not survive at all. And so we ended up proning him. I mean, proning is like an ordeal already for someone who doesn't have C-spine challenges. I can only imagine how difficult that was Mm to... You guys don't know. It's to flip the patient on their belly. But it's not like, hey, buddy, can can you roll over real quick? It's like this patient has tubes coming out of every orifice and lines, multiple chest tubes, fully catheter because it's still a tube, you know, like multiple arterial lines, Mm -hmm. multiple things connected to this patient. Was the EVD still in? The EVD was still in. But at that point, I think that we had clamped it. Okay. Um, So he was fine there. But still, still, you got to be so careful flipping this patient on his belly. I mean... I mean, how many people did it take? Like eight? Yes. Eight. <laughs> I was going to say eight, but, I, but yes, it took eight. Yes. Oh my gosh. It All right. So you flipped a patient with a C-spine injury on his belly. Yeah. And you proned him. Yep. How'd it go? Restarted neuromuscular blocking agents on him. Um, so we did the standard kind of like 16 and eight. So 16 hours proned, eight hours supine. And then we proned him one more time for 16 hours. And his PF ratio did improve. His FiO2, we were able to start weaning that down. So we supined him the last time around. And 
at that point, we were able to kind of come down on his vent settings that we felt like it was no longer necessary to prone him. So his lungs had started to oxygenate better. He was still not out of the woodworks. I mean, he had coded multiple times previously. Like, he was very, very sick. Um, I honestly did not think this patient was going to make it. But we ended up supining him. We're able to wean down his vent settings. EVD was out at this point. But he also ended up getting multiple chest tubes throughout this whole process after we supined him because he got necrotizing pneumonia. So he had other chest tubes that ended up having big air leaks from fistulas that happen. So at one point, he had like six chest tubes. That is crazy. It is a lot. Like this patient is a miracle. <laughs> yeah. Truly a miracle. So weaned down his vent settings where it was safe enough to actually trach him because with high vent settings, it's, it's risky to actually trach somebody. Got him off of his neuromuscular blocking agents before all of that, but he was still heavily, heavily sedated. Started lightening up the sedation, and initially, he wasn't moving. And so we were all very concerned neurological. Like, his neuro assessment, we were concerned. We were like, he's going to be paralyzed from his injuries. But the one thing we know about neuromuscular blocking agents, especially in the presence of steroids, especially with the fact that he had been in our unit for so long and on and off of them, you have myopathy that happens. So these patients are very weak. And about a week went by, two weeks, and continuing to try to do neuro assessments, he woke up neurologically in his brain, but he couldn't move anything yet. So he was able to blink with responses. Okay. And then one day, he moved one of his big toes. And (laughs) the way our team, I mean, it was like, we were like, this is actually happening. Like, this is going to be okay. And over time, he started to gain more function, more function. And it was... I got chills. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. I, when that happens, when you're like, we've worked so hard as a team for two months for this patient yeah. that we didn't know if they'd survive. And that, he's moving his toe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it was like, because at first he was just blinking and we were like, well, we can communicate and things like that. And then he started mouthing words once he got traked and then he still wasn't able to move anything. And we just continued, continued on, continued on. And eventually he moved his toe. And then eventually it was, he was able to do a little bit with his hands and it just, his mobility came back, his ability to move stuff. And I, oh. I truly believe it was all related to just neuromuscular blocking agents, steroids, like being so sick and, and you know, yeah. deconditioned for so long. Oh, yeah. Like you're going to have that. So, yeah, he ended up getting significantly better. We got him off the vent. He got most of his chest tubes removed and then he just had one. And he still had his trach and we transferred him out. And he was in the hospital, I'd say, for probably another month. And then right before he left the hospital, he actually walked back into our unit. That is so awesome. Yeah. I mean... Oof. Gets me all in my feelings, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as it should, like, we have to celebrate these types of things, Mm -hmm. you know? You see so many patients, traumas or COVID or whatever the thing is, and you just see their system just shut down, shut down. I mean, sometimes it's really hard to care for those patients, but... When they do survive, like we have to celebrate that For and, sure. and reflect back on it and be like, look what we did yeah. as an interdisciplinary team. Look at the difference we made. This guy gets to go home to his family. Yeah, He gets to go live his life now. Like, yeah, it was hard work for three, two months, three months caring for him, but we have done that as a team. What, what a gift to give back to him, his life. And I think, you know, with being in critical care, it can be challenging, like we said in the beginning, right? 
And one thing that I try to instill into my new nurses, whether they're new to ICU and they're an experienced nurse or they're a new grad into the ICU, is you will get those moments, those moments that you have to pack away and put them in your back pocket and pull them out every once in a while and look at them and be like, this is why I continue to do what I do because sure. we do great work and it does impact people and we're doing it for why we all got into it in the first place because it can wear on you and you have to remember those moments of being like, wow, look what we just did. Yeah. This is amazing because by all odds, I did not think he was going to make it. And that even came out of my mouth. I said, have we had discussions with family? You know, like this, there is no way. And here he is walking back into the unit before he left. That's amazing. Yeah. Sarah, thanks for sharing this story. If you, when you think back about his whole course of care, what would you say are like the main takeaways as far as teaching points when it comes to this patient's care or even just trauma in general? What do you think if we could summarize the priorities of care for this patient? So the priorities of care for this patient was going to initially be his watching what was going on neurologically because he was such at a risk of getting into that secondary injury related to cerebral edema. And then how do we manage the other complication that comes into play, which is ARDS, and all the other complications associated with the traumatic brain injury, right? <laughs> right? But even though this is a traumatic patient, we're not talking about blood and guts. That was kind of like, we gave him some blood. He might have gotten a little bit more in the unit, but nothing major. This is really understanding how all of those pathophysiological issues and injuries happen and how they work together and how we have to have really diligent assessment skills and watching all of it and how we're going to be able to manage them holistically. So I think that's the biggest thing, understanding, you know, that number one trauma is not all blood and guts sometimes. (laughs) They're very complex patients and knowing how injuries, even though it's localized, it can impact the entire body. Right. And like you were saying, if we just do like textbook nursing, like, okay, I have an ARDS patient, their PF ratio is getting worse, we need to go up on the PEEP. Well, hold on. (laughs) But let's think about the brain. Mm -hmm. Or like, I have a patient with increasing ICP, we need to, you know, do X, Y, and Z for that, but that's going to affect how we should care for the lung. We need need to decrease the PEEP. Everything interacts. And so like you said, having the critical thinking to think about the whole picture and make those difficult decisions interdisciplinary right do what's best for the patient i mean and he walked out the door yeah that's so awesome all right sarah this is a really good case i'm excited for next week to talk about the other aspect of trauma which is the trauma diamond of death yes are there any other like important takeaways that you want for my audience to know about this case or trauma I think that one thing we have to continue to remember is that this took an entire team. Yeah, Uh, It wasn't just one person. It wasn't just one nurse, one physician. Everyone's brains came together to help this patient. And it takes an entire team when you're working with somebody like that. Yeah, And that we do really great work as critical care nurses. That's right. I love it. All right, Sarah, thank you so much for being with me on this episode. This is awesome. (laughs) Looking forward to next episode. Me too. Okay. (laughs) Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you like this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. 
And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport. So trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as the Rapid Response RN. 